Good day, and welcome to Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. I'm Nancy Derringer, Communications Director for the Research Council, and in this podcast, we look at Michigan through a policy lens. Our discussions here are informed by our 102 years of experience doing nonpartisan, fact-based research on policy issues. We hope this podcast will serve as another way for the public to access our work, which is, as always, free and available to all at our website, crcmich.org. I'm joined now by Marjorie Sarbaugh-Thompson, who, along with her husband, Like, has been studying the effects of term limits in Michigan since they were passed by a ballot initiative in 1992. Marjorie, welcome. Good afternoon. Yes. Okay. We are, I should also mention that we are talking via Skype and sometimes that can lead to some jarring audio glitches. So if anybody's listening, I apologize in advance, but it can't be helped. Now, the research council on uh, your research was released May 8th. And in it, our president notes that more than half the men and women elected to office this fall will be new to their jobs or their chamber and some will be entirely new to Lansing. And that would suggest a lot of lawmakers will be learning on the job next year. So let's start by talking a little bit about the history of the term limits movement in Michigan. Now, 1992 was the year that Ross Perot made a credible outsider run for president, and that was a year when voters were very much in a throw-the-bums-out frame of mind, not just here but nationally, right? Yes, that is correct. And um, if I could make one small correction, we actually didn't start studying term limits until uh, 1998 when they were about to take effect and to um, expel the veterans who had been in the chamber. Um, I actually was very busy doing a whole lot of other research um, and getting a new job. And I had a nine-month-old and a nine-year-old and a tenure clock running and was finishing writing a dissertation when term limits passed. I was uh, joking with Earl Ryan last night at the Lent Upson dinner that I actually got on the League of Women Voters website the night before I voted in 1992 to figure out how I was going to cast my ballot on that. I see. So okay. I didn't really tune into it until around 1998. Okay. So I stand corrected on that. And I, I'm sorry. Um, so can you, but can you talk a little bit about what the, cause this was a national movement, as I recall. I mean, we're not the only state to have this. There were, and I believe there were something like 14 states that passed term limit amendments in 1992. Um, actually, there, there were 21 states that passed, uh, that did have uh, term limits. 20 of them did it through ballot initiatives. Louisiana is the only state that term limited itself uh, through legislative action. And most people are uh, somewhat suspicious that that was because they had some major corruption scandals and they figured it was a way to appease voters <laughs> I see. Uh, before the election. Uh, but most, um, most, with one exception, states adopted this through the ballot initiative. There are only 15 states that still have the limits. Um, uh, several states, um, it violated uh, various constitutional provisions, and there were um, state Supreme Court challenges. And then, of course, you know, the national challenge, most term limits ballot proposals 
possibly all, but I'm not certain without looking at all of them. But most of them, as did Michigan's, included people for U.S. House seats, U.S. Congress. And that was ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. So that part of term limits got stripped out. And then several states overturned them. And then there have been some repeals and, you know, different state level activities. So currently there are 15 left. Okay. But at one point there were 21. Okay. All right. We'll get uh, to some of those reform efforts later. Um, But how, how were these, uh, how was this initiative sold to the voters of Michigan? What was the argument in favor of term limits in Michigan? There were a lot of different arguments, um, and and if you go back and look at some of the editorials at the time, which is how we tried to figure out what had actually been promised, was to look at some of the, the editorials and some of the national and state um, news coverage, um, you know, some of the other documents that are floating around from that time period, as well as stuff from U.S. term limits and, you know, other other sorts of national groups. But there were a lot of different promises made. Um, you know, one of the ones that actually even the opponents of term limits believed would really happen, which ironically has not happened, is that by expelling entrenched incumbents, most of whom were white males, that you would end up with more diversity, gender and um, ethnicity diversity in state legislatures. And even the opponents conceded that, well, yes, that's probably true. Um, but <laughs> that, that ironically has turned out not to be as true as people had expected. Hmm. And there, there were some other arguments too, right? That this would yes. make people, um, make representatives more responsive to their voters. That the responsiveness to the voters, um, the idea that you would have people who would be very much citizen legislators who would go and serve in, um, you know, elected office for a very short time period and then go back home and live under the laws that they passed. There was um, a brochure, I believe it might have been from California, um, that I saw at one point that talked about mom and pop who owned the corner um, convenience store would go to the um, state capitol. In that case, it would have been Sacramento and serve for a couple of years and then come home and, and live under the laws that they had passed. So there was a real ethos of, of kind of the, the um, early traditions of town hall meetings, citizen engagement in public governments and, and that it would be, um, you know, just uh, much less uh, kind of politicians as a category of people where their career aspirations were to to continue in political office. That was one of the big themes. And then uh, another really big theme was that there were ties between legislators and special interests, that uh, legislators were in the pockets of various and sundry special interests, and that you would sever those cozy relationships, as they were often called, and the legislators would be these independent, sometimes they're called Burkean trustees, uh, who think about the good uh, of the whole, the welfare of the whole state, uh, rather than their own, you know, parochial interests or special interests. And that gets 
very difficult to parse because some of the time people like responsiveness to districts, which are parochial interests. And sometimes they like responsiveness to statewide issues. I suspect in the context of particular issues, it varies depending on the content of the issue. But that's one of those big debates that was out there. Hmm. So basically, the destruction of the entrenched political class and the rise of a humbler, simpler, uh, more plugged into the grassroots um, replacement. There was certainly a lot of rhetoric on, on those kinds of themes. And there, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was discussed and promised and um, so on. There were entire books written on uh, what term limits would bring us. Okay. And the obvious next question then, has that happened? Well, <laughs> a lot of it has produced things that should make the, the people who were true advocates for term limits, very unhappy and very sad. And I think a lot of people who were supporters of that movement had genuine concerns about reforming government, creating better government, good government kinds of, of themes. And I think there are some ways that they might have expended their energy that might have had more impact. A lot of people thought term limits were going to be a silver bullet that would fix all sorts of things, and hence the range of promises. And unfortunately, in political life, there are very few silver bullets. Yeah. So complicated uh, problems very rarely have simple solutions. <laughs> so Right. <laughs> so, so what has happened then that we perhaps did not anticipate well, I think one of the ones, since since it was something that both proponents and opponents tended to agree on, is this idea that we were going to have um, a whole lot of gender and ethnic diversity in our state houses, and both in Michigan and in and nationally, that just hasn't turned out to be the case. And part of that is certainly not the fault of term limits, but it's just that it wasn't a panacea that was going to fix that. And when you termed out people, you termed out a lot of, um, you know, female legislators, ethnic minority group legislators. And even in the initial turning and churning where you moved people from the House, uh, women and ethnic minority members up into the Senate, it turned out to be fairly short lived. And, and then there was a, a sort of a retrenchment, uh, falling back, particularly it's, it's more, easily identified with gender equity than with ethnicity because um, so much of the ethnic composition of a state legislature depends on how the districts are drawn. And you can influence that composition a lot more dramatically by changes in the the district boundaries. But with uh, gender equity, uh, we saw like a real decline, especially in the Republican Party, Um, It went from, I believe it was 12 women uh, right before term limits took effect, and then it dropped down, I believe it went down in the House to four women on the Republican side of the aisle. And some of that has been um, fewer women running in primaries. Also, in both political parties, what we discovered was that women don't win quite as often in general election contests after term limits. 
one of the reasons that the opponents of term limits, many of whom were academics, believed that that it would end up with more gender diversity is prior to some of the the big turnovers that we've seen with term limits. If you look at times when women run for office, they um, tend to win um, if the seats are open just as often or a little more often than men do. But that was a contest, a, a context in which you had a very small number of open seats and people were choosing very strategically whether or not to run. When you have these vast waves of open seats and lots and lots of candidates jumping into primary elections, those dynamics change a little bit. And we found that they're not quite as favorable to women winning seats as a lot of people had thought they were. That's interesting. Yeah, it actually has been from a from a standpoint of just straight, you know, pure, unrelated to term limits, political science of, you know, what factors determine which kinds of candidates are going to win an election. It provides some very interesting data for people to look at because you have such large populations of turnover, whereas typically it's hard to get statistical significance and enough cases that you can really, um, you know, tease out the dynamics. And term limits provide us with a huge opportunity in political science to explore a lot of questions that we typically can't explore because we don't have enough wave elections to do it. I see. So how has the power shifted in Lansing as a result um, you know, state government is generally modeled on the federal government where you have co-equal branches of the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. Um, has that power balance changed significantly that you, as far as you can tell? Um, to the best of our understanding of what has happened subsequent to term limits, The executive branch, even though we've had um, fairly inexperienced governors subsequent to to, um, Governor Engler being termed out of office, um, there is so much more staff and um, so much more um, sort of support structure for the executive branch that they have gotten more powerful and the legislature has lost some of their ability to... um, parse through some of these really complicated technical issues. A lot of times people think that the legislature is spending most of its time on the kinds of issues that show up in news media coverage. A colleague and I are currently working on an article about difficult issues. And during the term limits research, we had asked people to tell us about the most difficult issue that a committee had seriously considered. Um, And we find out that there are all sorts of issues. Um, For example, one was how to price the value of submerged logs that are sunk on the bottoms of the Great Lakes in order to put the price low enough to encourage private investors to dredge the logs and bring them up and pay for them, but not so high that you 
don't get the revenue that the state of Michigan deserves for what is a very valuable resource. It turns out that those logs, because they were grown in virgin forests, have much finer grain than our current timber, and they make really good quality musical instruments, like, you know, the kind of Stradivarius violin quality um, musical instruments. So it's really valuable stuff. But probably nobody ran on a campaign pledge on what they were going to do about submerged logs. <laughs> and you know, those sorts of things are really hard to figure out. So you're bringing in waves of people who've never seen that issue before. And the, the legislative staff, the personal staff, turns over at a fairly high rate. The nonpartisan staff have more continuity for the legislature. But you're, you're just scrambling, um, and you can envision being confronted with, you know, dozens and dozens of these kinds of issues. It's really a steep learning curve. And it's not, I'm not trying to dismiss the capabilities or the sincerity of a lot of the people who ran for these new open seats. But if I had to try and become an expert on all those things all at once, the the standard description is that you've got people who are trying to drink from a fire hose. Exactly. So that's kind of that kind of leads into one of my next questions, which is, you know, why do you think as a political scientist, why do you think voters believe that the longer a politician stays in office, the worse it is for constituents? Is there any other line of work where experience is seen as somehow inherently corrupting? I mean, and at at the federal level, I mean, look at our recent Michigan congressional delegation in Washington. I mean, we had John Dingell, uh, John Conyers, uh, um, Senator Levin, you know, all of these long-term, very powerful politicians who the voters kept sending back and kept sending back. And so you would think that if the voters were naturally inclined to believe that a shorter term in office is better, they might be willing to, to act on that at the voting, you know, in the voting booth. But instead, they've said they're completely fine with um, senators and, and congressmen serving decades in Washington. But in Lansing, that's a bad thing. So I'm just wondering, like, you know, why are we so down on experience in a job that, as you just pointed out, it has a lot of different moving parts that that you would think would your performance would improve the longer you do it. Um, I think there are a couple different things. For one thing, I think that a lot of what sold term limits to the public was the people in D.C. And you recall, remember I mentioned that that was included in those ballot initiatives, but the U.S. Supreme Court threw that out. That's true. Because states can't dictate to the federal government, and it it has to do with the supremacy clause and, and not to get into the weeds of that. But that was ruled out. And quite frankly, when I look at things where people are in their 80s or 90s, and um, the example that comes to mind is I remember stories about them wheeling Strom Thurmond in on a gurney to raise his hand physically to vote in the, the 
U.S. Senate. That offends people, and it offends me, too. Um, I don't think that somebody who has to have their hand raised for them <laughs> is necessarily the best representative <laughs> uh, for the job. And there, there are other places, um, you know, where, where we do get critical of people who perhaps need to retire at some point. And I'm not talking about people who are in their 70s and lively or in their 80s and lively. I'm talking about situations where we have people who are effectively in assisted living situations, right. extended care, extremely ill, and they don't step down. And part of that is motivated by politics and timing when they're going to leave office to you know, coincide with elections and so on. But that offends people. And I think they're right to be offended by that. Hmm. But that's not what we've done. We're taking people who are, have served for six years in the house who are, you know, perfectly sharp, capable, just came up the learning curve and now are getting a handle on the job and we're shoving them out of office. And that's a whole different story. So I think somehow the, the two have gotten conflated. And there's a real difference between somebody who is at a point where their health is failing, their, um, you know, various cognitive facilities are failing. We would probably want them out of the CEO positions and companies, mm -hmm. we would probably want them out of a lot of situations. In the corporate world, we might transfer the actual real authority to some of the vice presidents and someone would remain as a, um, you know, a dignitary, uh, a public face or a public persona of the company. There are there are nicer little kind of arabesques to the side in the private world. So I don't think it becomes quite as problematic. But in the public sector, that's the image I think that people had in mind. And I share their concern on that. Mm -hmm. It's just that term limits is not the solution to that. I see. Well, okay. So we hear a lot today about political polarization, which is not a problem with a single cause, obviously. Um, have term limits played a part in that? The evidence is really quite strong that they have. And it's not just our evidence. Um, there is national data on roll call voting. And there is a um, currently a, a, an article that I know about that will be published shortly, um, will appear in press, it's work in progress. Um, but it's very, very well um, tested lots of empirical evidence that shows that term limits increase polarization. Yes, the whole country has gotten polarized, and so it's difficult to parse out, but there's some scholars out there with, who have used national data, who have expended all the, the appropriate time and energy to separate that general trend from the trend than within the term-limited states. And it is a stronger effect in the term-limited states. And if you think about it, it's really quite logical. When we interviewed some of the veterans who were in the chamber 
and who had served for years together. There was a capital city circuit hockey team that people told us about that was bipartisan. And they might argue with each other vigorously on the floor of the chamber, but they went out and they were on the same team. There was a um, some sort of a rock band that used to play in some of the local um, bars and things around Lansing that was bipartisan. I don't know how good they were, but they certainly were <laughs> developing bipartisan <laughs> relationships. Uh, you know, there were lots of examples that we had like that. And people would tell us about, you know, dinner and um, get-togethers with spouses. One of the things that actually gets tangled up with the term limits movement is some of the people who were real proponents for this, I think, are people who wanted ideologically pure legislators, not people who would move toward the center. And one of the things in the political science literature that we find with or without term limits is that the longer people serve, the more they're willing to work across the aisle, the more they're willing to understand that the constituents that people have in southeast Michigan or southwest Michigan are different from the constituents that somebody has in the UP. And that, um, you know, something as pragmatic as leash laws for dogs are there's different needs in suburban and metro areas than there are in the rural parts of the state. And they start to see that there's a wider range of views than just what they've experienced or just what their constituents experienced. And they become much more pragmatic and much more willing to negotiate across the aisle. And what we found was in the last term in the House, um, people spend more time trying to build coalitions across party lines to pass legislation than they do before. And prior to term limits, they also spent more time working across party lines to try and build coalitions. So if if what you want is a polarized chamber where you've got, you know, the the people on the the far left of the party who, you know, want people to be ideologically pure and and come out in the primaries and want, you know, the the candidate to, you know, that's the most pure or the people on the right who similarly want the most pure candidate in the primary, those people get frustrated when people start coming together in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually a lot of people in the state prefer people who are willing to moderate their positions and work for the state as a whole. Right. right. But it's they're not, not necessarily the most vocal people. Right. It's right. not a zero-sum game. No, it is absolutely not. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, before we go too much longer, I want to to wrap up with um, a few words about uh, reforms, because some of the of the states that have adopted term limits have found some of these problems and have made moves to at least partially correct them without overturning the law entirely. Can you kind of sketch out a few of the states where where they have done this and what has worked in making them more effective and what they were originally intended to do? Well, the 
to to kind of backtrack slightly, people think that term limits are like a particular thing that states either either have them or don't have them, that it's a binary condition. There actually are, um, you know, it's almost like Baskin Robbins, you know, there are different flavors of term limits. And so some of them have very, very short limits on the time that people are allowed to serve. And Michigan at this point has the shortest limit in the lower chamber of any of the 15 states with term limits. Okay. Um, there also is a difference in whether they're lifetime bans or whether it's a limit on consecutive years of service. Six of the 15 states that have term limits have lifetime bans. Michigan is also one of those. So someplace like Ohio, our, our neighbor next door, that also has term limits, their people in the lower chamber can serve eight years instead of six years. They also are allowed to just take a time out and then come back and serve in the lower chamber again. And even more interestingly, their time out of the lower chamber could be time in the upper chamber. So they could literally go from the House to the Ohio Senate, back to the lower chamber, back and forth, if they wanted to. Indefinitely? They simply have to take a time out. Indefinitely? Indefinitely. Hmm, okay. And so uh, nine of the 15 states with term limits have that sort of arrangement. So when you're talking about term limits, it, we need to be clear that Michigan's term limits at this point in time are the most stringent limits for the lower chamber of any state of the 15. Okay. The other two states that used to match us are California and Arkansas. They had identical term limits to ours. They were lifetime bans, and they limited the lower chamber to six years only, and then eight years in the upper chamber. California has changed their law so that people can serve for a maximum of 12 years in either legislative chamber or any combination of the two legislative chambers. So you could come in and serve two years in the House, run for an open Senate seat, and stay 10 years in the Senate. Um, you know, it and the the math of that would be somewhat complicated because actually you would have to step out. You okay. can't serve, like, partial terms would be tricky. Um, in Arkansas, they changed it so that they can serve 16 years. And, again, it's in either chamber or any combination of the two chambers. Okay. So you can, you can you know, move up. You can stay in California. You could stay for 12 years total in the lower chamber. In Arkansas, you could stay for 16 years total in the lower chamber. They are still lifetime bans. Once you're done, you're done. But you have some continuity within that lower chamber because the lower chamber is where you see the, the real churning of people coming in. And there, there are examples in Michigan and there were examples in California and Arkansas of people who come in and in their freshman term in office – they're chairing a committee, and they've never served on a committee. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it is not just that we've term-limited people so that the rank-and-file legislators are newcomers. It's the people who are supposed to be leading, organizing, running 
the show are in their first terms. And you, I've watched videotapes of these. You see staff leaning over and trying to correct the procedural errors because <laughs> they're, they're just all sorts of, you know, pragmatic day-to-day mundane reality things that people have to learn if they're going to chair a committee meeting. And so if you can allow people like in California or in Arkansas, to serve for many years in the same position, then you're not in a position where you have people trying to learn on the job who are leading the, the show. Every organization, one would hope, would have bring some new blood in, in its lower or mid-ranks, and then train them and move them up in the organization. But it's usually desirable for people to have some experience in the field before they're actually the CEO, like the in the house that would be like the speaker, and the speakers often have only two years of experience. Wow. And the other thing is, in terms of accountability, if you're thinking about a chair or a, a chamber leader like the house speaker, you want accountability for that person in terms of the caucus as a whole. The the caucus elects those people. They literally elect them the week after the election. They li- the the newcomers haven't served with these people at all. Right. And we had a lot of people expressed buyer's remorse about the people they had elected to leadership <laughs> positions um, because they don't really know what they want in that kind of a leader. And the the reasons that people choose leaders change as they get a little more experience in the chamber. So a lot of these internal um, kind of chamber positions inside um, institution positions are really affected when you have turnover and you don't have time for people to develop some experience. I think the general public thinks of a legislature as a very flat, um, open debating society where everybody has exactly equal power. And with a committee system, which I know of no lower legislative chambers that don't have committee systems, with the committee systems, you've established the beginnings of a hierarchy. So the chair is in charge of the committee members. And then the committee ties in with the speaker and, you know, provides guidance for the caucus. So you have what in the corporate world would look more like a multi-divisional hierarchical um, system. And you want to develop some capacity for people to move up in the hierarchy based on their expertise, their reputation for being an honest broker, for listening to all viewpoints in the caucus. And people aren't in a position to know who's going to be able to do that when you have to choose somebody who has no experience, no track record. Hmm. So it turns out that it's um, that actually serving in a legislature is a little more complicated than we were taught in seventh grade civics. <laughs> oh, much more. <laughs> or by Schoolhouse Rock or whatever our, our, uh, our method of education was. Yeah, there are a lot of myths that we're taught in American government classes that don't really comport with what's necessary in order to operate in the modern world with, you know, major budgets and, you know, all all sorts of complexities of daily life. Yes. Okay. 
this was a fascinating discussion. You you really seem to um, to know your topic well after nearly twenty years of looking at this. You teach and along with your husband, like uh, at Wayne State University, which I believe I failed to mention in our um, introduction here in the political science department. Yes, and my husband is also the director of the Center for Urban Studies. Okay, all right. So we'll we'll leave it at that. Your resume is is very impressive. So oh, thank, thank you, you. <laughs> thank you so much, um, Dr. Sarbaugh Thompson. This has been a, like I said, a, a great discussion, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you again. Thank you. Okay. Bye. And that will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Remember, the council operates as a public resource, and all of our papers, along with blogs, op-eds, and other resources, are available for download on our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit through the generosity of Michigan's corporations, foundations, and individuals like you. If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmich.org, and click on the contribution button on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to crcmich at crcmich.org. I'm Nancy Derringer, and until next time, I leave you with this observation by our founding president, Lent Upson. The right to criticize government is also an obligation to know what you're talking about. Until next time, thanks for listening.